danger is stealing in as relapse comes above the den. It's hard to know if this will be the day when you give in. Give in. Give in. Give in. Hello and welcome to episode 348 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. This is going to be a solo episode, uh, entirely my fault. My schedule has just been extremely busy of late. Uh, a lot of that has been there's a, a tournament series going on on America's Card Room, so I've been playing a lot more online poker than I typically do. And for whatever reason, I've just had a ton of uh, coaching requests, which has been great. Um, I've enjoyed working with so many people, but it has cut into uh, time for podcasting and podcast scheduling. Um, I do have a couple of guests, uh, people who are uh, who, who will be on the show soon. I'm looking forward to bringing you, um, and hopefully line up a time to do something uh, simultaneously with Nate in the near future. Uh, of course, those of you who want to hear uh, me and Nate or me and Carlos or Nate and Carlos regularly talking poker strategy, please do come support the podcast at patreon.com slash thinking poker daily. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thinking poker daily. And you will get exactly what it sounds like, which is daily strategy episodes, uh, depending on the tier at which you choose to support the show. Um, you'll get 10 to 15 minutes of strategy content every single day with us discussing uh, hands and, and strategy questions sent in by listeners like you. Um, so that is the single best way to get your strategy questions answered by us and also to hear regular strategy from us. We've been having a great time doing that. There's none of this babbling like I'm doing right now. It's just you know, dive straight into the strategy, uh, hardcore strategy for 10, 15 minutes, and we're out. Um, it's been very popular. We've gotten really good feedback on it. Everyone who's signed up, uh, well, everyone who's bothered to write us after signing up has uh, loved it. We've not had a lot of people dropping out after signing up. Um, so hopefully you'll sign up as well. It's, it's a lot of fun, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. Uh, I'm just going to do a strategy segment for you today. Um, it is based on a hand sent to us by Gregory, um, but it deals with playing in multi-way pots in general um, and also with bluff catching, which I think are two topics that for different reasons that people tend to struggle with. <clears throat> so let me go ahead and share with you um, I'm probably not, it's, it's fairly long and I have a couple discussion points along the way. So I think I'm not going to read the whole thing to you from the get go, but uh, I'll set it up and, and, you know, have some, some things to talk about along the way. So this hand is uh, played at a two, five, no limit table at the Texas card house in Dallas. Uh, Gregory says, I've just recently moved up in stakes. I'm taking a shot at the larger games. 2-5 here plays much more like 5-10 or larger with a 1,000 starting cap and a match the larger stack rule when someone exceeds that. I sit down with my humble 1,000, which is all I'm rolled for, and I am the third shortest stack at the table. Most players have around 3k or more. The largest stack is 6k. 45 minutes into the session, I'm up to 2,300 and look down at black 10s in the cutoff. So, First uh, discussion point, we're here already. If you feel like a thousand is barely within your role, 
Um, well, I guess you're not just going to pick up and leave after 45 minutes. Um, now that I say this out loud, but you know, I would consider like if if you're really feeling, I'm just getting the sense from from the way he describes like sitting into the game with a thousand. Um, depending on you know what your bankroll situation is, uh, you probably are going to want to pick up <laughs> when you start to run up a stack like this, especially if you're also not real accustomed playing deep. Um, those are like two things that are going to cut against you continuing to play. Like you know if if you're barely bankrolled to have a thousand on the table, and this is an aggressive game where like it really is not that implausible to get four hundred big blinds into the pot, then um, you should. You know, you need to be fully prepared to lose the money you have on the table, both like psychologically and financially fully prepared to lose the money on the table. And if you're not, then you should be looking for excuses to pick up. I realized, you know, socially, you're probably not going to do that after 45 minutes, but um, you should be thinking about, you know, when and how can I leave? I know that's not a great feeling, but it is the right thing for you if this is like a big chunk of your bank you know if if this is like 10 percent of your bankroll or whatever that that's on the table i think there are some good reasons why um you may not and you also might not want to sit uh or maybe a thousand yeah i don't know if a thousand i mean it's probably not the minimum buy-in so um you might consider buying in for less you know so that you have room to win and still be within your bankroll just things to think about um, as you'll hear, like the results of this hand, clearly uh, Gregory is not afraid to put the money in the pot, which is good. I mean, it's good that he's not afraid, but um, for what it's worth, you know, I think that's worth uh, considering. Like just because you were rolled to sit down with a thousand, like you need to reevaluate that decision when you've run a stack up considerably beyond that. Anyway, so this is two five. There's an under the gun straddle to ten dollars. One player limps, and Gregory has black tens in the cutoff. Uh, he raises to 50, which I think is perfectly fine. I wouldn't be surprised in a game like this if it would be optimal to raise larger. Like, I think just the, the general vibe of this game and the fact that we've got a straddle and a limp, <laughs> I, I think people, it sounds like people are probably pretty loose pre-flop. So I could certainly see a case for going to, you know, 60, 70, 80 here, depending on how much you think people will call. Like the goal is just, you want to still be getting called by hands that you dominate. You know, if they're willing to call an $80 raise with six, five suited or pocket fours or whatever, then, you know, make the $80 raise. The only time that you're going to be making a mistake is if you raise so large that they start folding hands that you dominate. Um, that's, that's when it's going to be kind of a problem, but I think 50 is a, a fine number. Uh, here raises to 50 with black 10s in the cutoff. The small blind calls. The big blind re-raises to 275. The straddler and the limper fold. So we've had straddle for 10, limp for 10. Here makes it 50 from the cutoff. Small blind calls. Big blind squeezes the 275 folds back to the hero. Um, I think this is a pretty clear call. Um, I can imagine players against whom I would rather fold or re-raise. Um, it's pretty hard to imagine doing either though. I mean, unless you're looking to get 2,300 in pre-flop, which even in a straddled pot is a lot for pocket tens, I wouldn't like, I don't really want to four bet fold this, um, nor am I that eager about playing it post flop in a four bet pot. So I, I can't see much of a case for four betting. Um, you're in position, you still have a lot of money behind, you have a, a very good hand. I mean, I'm not thrilled that the big blind is, is squeezing, but I think it's, you know, it looks very solidly like a call to me. I don't think that's controversial really. 
Um, and the small blind ends up calling behind. Gregory says, it's worth noting I've only been at the table for a short while at this point and have little to no reads on these players, but they've done nothing out of the ordinary. With $845 in the pot and about $2,000 in the effective stacks, we go three ways to the flop, which is not the prettiest for me. Ace of diamonds, king of diamonds, seven of clubs. Hero again is holding black tens. The small blind thinks for a moment, then checks. The big blind thinks for longer, then checks. I, of course, also check, and the flop has now checked through. I feel my play thus far is relatively uncontroversial, um, but feel free to discuss what might motivate the three better to check and not take the opportunity to utilize his range advantage, or if there's any reason I should bet the flop here whatsoever. Um, so I'll get the easy one out of the way first. I do not think there is a case for you betting the flop. Uh, I don't think it's the case that the big blind should just be betting this flop 100% of the time. Um, just because he has a range advantage doesn't mean that betting is always going to be correct for him. Um, first off, in a multi-way pot, you're going to have lower betting frequencies in general. This is because it's harder to bluff and also harder to make thin value bets in multi-way pots. Right? When you bluff in a multi-way pot, you have to get multiple people to fold, and that's hard to do, especially when there's an ace and a king on the board in a three-bet pot, there's a very good chance that somebody has a big pair, and you know they're probably not giving up on it very easily. So if you don't have it, and you don't have equity against it, um, you know it's fine to bet the flop with a gut shot. It's fine to bet the flop with a flush draw. You know, if the big blind is sitting there holding like nine eight of hearts, he probably should not bet the flop. You know, I don't think he's getting enough fold equity to justify that. Typically, you're not going to be able to get away with a lot of pure bluffing in in multi-way pots. I mean, there's like everything in poker, it depends. There are exceptions. I think in general, you're not going to be, you shouldn't be looking to do a lot of pure bluffing in multi-way pots. Um, you can bet when you have blockers, you can bet when you have draws. Your betting in general is going to be a little bit more like depolarized in, in multi-way pots. This is also why you're typically going to use smaller sizing in multi-way pots, because a lot of what you're accomplishing with a bet, um, fold equity is a bigger deal in multi-way pots, but that doesn't mean you're bluffing. What it means is that you're getting more value from the hands that your opponent folds. In other words, if you did have, let's say, ace-queen, and you bet this ace-king-seven with two diamonds board, um, ordinarily, like if you were just in a heads-up pot, the hands your opponent is folding to that bet are typically not hands that have very much equity against you. Like he's not folding a flush draw, he's not folding any kind of straight draw. You know, he might be folding like pocket pairs that have two outs or, uh, you know, a five, six of clubs kind of hand that has some backdoor draws. You're getting to fold like a pretty small amount of equity. In multi-way pots, people will fold slightly better hands. So you may get people folding like an eight, seven or something that they wouldn't fold in a heads up pot that has a little bit more equity against you. But also um, just causing multiple people to fold small amounts of equity is, is worthwhile, right? If each player individually is only folding five to 10% equity, that's not worth a lot in a heads up pot. In a two-way pot, that's you know 10 to 20% equity. In a three-way pot, that's like 20 to 25% equity. So it does start to add up even these like small, amounts of fold equity because you're getting it from multiple players. So even when you're betting with what's probably the best hand in a multi-way pot, um, 
you're you're benefiting a little bit more from folds than you would be in a heads up pot. Um, it's also harder to bet for thin value in multi-way pots because the hands that give you action are on average stronger, right? If more people are saying the flop, then the chance of one of your opponents, like if you're betting into two people, the hand that calls is going to be the stronger of those two hands. So instead of playing against one person's hand, you're playing against the stronger of two different hands that got to see the flop. It would be a little like if you were playing a hold'em hand and someone else was, well, they don't have nearly as many combos as a PLO hand would have, but, you know, it's like if someone else got dealt two hands and you only got dealt one, you'd be at a pretty big disadvantage. And that's essentially what's happening here. You're playing against two people. And so for you to be betting for value, you have to be pretty confident that your hand is going to be ahead of the better of the two hands that your two opponents could hold. And that's just a much higher threshold than expecting to be better ahead of a single hand in a heads up pot. So in a heads up pot, um, there, I mean, I'm not saying you would always bet these hands, but you would have more incentive to bet with any ace. You could bet with a good queen, um, and you might still get called by hands that are worse than yours. In multi-way pots, um, I think there's going to be less in incentive to bet with a bad ace, be less incentive to bet with a king, less incentive to bet with queens, jacks. I mean, those are often hands you wouldn't want to bet in a heads up pot anyway. The bottom line is I think there's a lot of hands that... I can imagine the big blind wanting to not bet for a variety of reasons. In some cases, because they have showdown value um, and and don't benefit that much from protection and aren't going to be in good shape if a bet gets called, like queens or king 10 or something, I think there's good reasons for the big blind not to bet those, or ace 5. Um, I think there's good reasons for the big blind not to bet 9-8 of hearts or something if he has just some kind of very weak hand that uh, doesn't even really have a lot of equity on this board. Um, and then, you know, because he's going to be checking all those weak hands, like he should sometimes be checking some strong hands, like pocket aces or ace king or something, or even um, because he's out of position, to you at least, like he could be checking kings looking to check raise it. Like he's allowed to check some strong hands, not just as a slow play, but for the intention of check raising them. So yes, it's true that the big blind as the three better is more likely to have you know, strong hands and nutty hands on an ace-king-7 board, even in a three-way pot, but that doesn't mean that he should just be betting his entire range. So there are some hands he should be checking um, medium, weak, and strong. All right, back to Gregory. $845 in the pot, still three players. Gregory has black tens, and the turn is the five of spades. So the board now is ace of diamonds, king of diamonds, seven of clubs, five of spades. And the small blind bets $300 into the $845 pot. The big blind tanks and then folds, and Gregory says, I admittedly got curious, if not a little stubborn, and decided to flat and see a river. This decision is likely very controversial, but here's my line of thinking. There are a lot of straight and flush draws. I do block a lot of the hands I'm ahead of that may elect to bet as a bluff, like Jack Tennis Spades or Queen Tennis Spades, uh, though those are unlikely holdings given the double smooth call preflop. I feel this type of preflop action weights the small blind much more towards a middling pocket pair such as nines through fives, possibly even the other two remaining tens attempting to set mine. I rule out larger pairs as they likely would have three bet themselves pre-flop. 
All that being said, a flopped or turned set of sevens or fives would certainly take this line, but so might other hands such as nines, eights, or any other weak one pair holdings he's uh, either overvaluing or attempting to steal a pot with after he sees the flop check through. I wonder how often I should call here at equilibrium, if at all, or if there are better bluff catch hands to make this call with, such as king nine suited or something similar. Um, I think this is a little too narrow of a read to, just in terms of what the small blinds preflop range might look like. I would fully expect to see hands like Jack-10 and Queen-10 suited in there. I mean, I think Gregory is right that this is how I would expect a fair number of pocket pairs to play, but for a lot of the same reasons, I would also expect, like, what would you expect, what else would you expect him to do with Jack-10 of spades? I mean, it wouldn't be an unreasonable re-raising hand, but I think it would be a perfectly fine hand for him to call with from the small blind. And then when it goes squeeze call, um, it's possible he'd be better off folding jack tennis spades, but many people aren't going to do that. Like people are going to call with those hands um, because you know that's the kind of game this is. <laughs> like it's it's certainly not the worst call you've ever seen in this situation. Um, so I think I think we are going to see a lot of that kind of stuff: um, suited broadways, suited connectors, pocket pairs. I think that the pocket pairs are the less appealing bets here. If, if the villain has nines, tens, jacks, he doesn't really have that much incentive to bet as a bluff because not very many better hands are folding. There might be some, but I mean, the risk of running into an ace or a king is gonna outweigh, I think, the value of occasionally making a slightly better pocket pair fold. Because a lot of the times, like if he bets with jacks and you fold tens, that's not really doing him any good. You know, he's, he's not collecting very much equity in that situation. And as I said, the, the risk of running into an Acer King is substantial. The other thing to think about here in terms of your own bluff catching is the small blind is taking a fairly big risk here if he is betting as a bluff because he's betting into two people. So you might look at this and think, well, he's only risking 300 to win 845 in the pot, so I need to be calling pretty frequently or else his bluffs are going to be profitable. But remember, there's two people, one of whom was a pre-flop three better. So the the for him to be indifferent to bluffing, it's a matter of how often does at least one of you call, not a how often do you personally call. Now, I mean, Gregory hasn't mentioned anything about like minimum defense frequency or anything like that. I just want to give everybody that context right? that um, you know, bluff like you're going to do less bluff catching in multi-way pots because um, all the players do some bluff catching and like between you you do enough bluff catching to make the player indifferent to bluffing but you personally don't have to do all so like the end result is you don't really have to do that much calling with weak hands here in order to make this player indifferent to bluffing in other words in order to for it not to be profitable for them to just be like firing at this with a low equity hand um, I think the size of this bet, like I also wouldn't rule out the small blind just having an ace. <laughs> you know, like I think ace x suited um, could take this line preflop for many of the same reasons that like a jack ten suited would. So I think it's you know plausible that he has hands like those. Um, I think there are people in the small blinds, like I don't think it's a very good way for, like if a small blind had ace, queen, race, jack, I'd say he should probably be three betting versus your cutoff raise. And if he didn't, he should probably be folding to the big blind squeeze, but 
plenty of people won't play it that way. Like I would not be shocked to see someone show down ace queen race jack here, especially if it's suited. So I do think it's plausible that he could have an ace as well. And I think your hand, um, in part because as you said, you are blocking some of those, some of the most obvious bluffs, which would be like the jack 10, queen 10 kind of hands. Um, so blocking those is not good. Um, it is good that you don't have diamonds in your hand. Um, unblocking diamonds is nice when it comes to bluff catching. But I think there's very little value in theory to calling here with tens. Um, I'm not really comfortable making claims about what equilibrium in multi-way pots looks like because it's not something that I've been able to study directly. Um, we don't really have good tools for that. But I think there's a fair chance you're just never calling here. I think there should be enough ace-x and king-x between you and the original razor that you don't really need to be defending with hands as weak as this. Um, part of the problem with your hand also is a 10 is not even necessarily a good river for you. <laughs> um, I mean, it is, but like if you get a 10 on the river and then the villain jams for 1.2x pot, I mean... I don't know that he has two pair there for value. So your hand is kind of still a bluff catcher, even though you've made a set. Um, that's not a huge factor, I guess, but I just think you have kind of a hand that can't like, so when you say like, I call and see a river, I don't think you're getting new information from the river card. I mean, your hand, there really aren't river cards that improve your hand. One of the two diamond, one of the two tens left in the deck is a diamond. Um, I don't think you're really getting important information. Like that's part of the problem with your hand is it's already a pure bluff catcher and it's still going to be a pure bluff catcher on the river. So you're just sort of, I would think of calling here as like drawing to another tough decision. <laughs> which I don't think is a very appealing thing to do, despite the fact that you're getting a decent price. They're just, you're not really expecting, you have no reason to think you're going to have any more clarity on the river than you have now. So I think you, at least in theory, do want to just fold the turn. Now that said, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of your opponents don't understand any of what I just said and are just like, oh, two people check the flop. They can't possibly have good hands. I'll just bet the turn for whatever. So I think there are plenty of exploitative reasons why you might you know, decide to call here. That's just a question of player pool tendencies and anything you might feel comfortable guessing about this opponent. I don't think he's supposed to do a lot of bluffing here in, in theory, but I wouldn't be surprised if your average opponent does, you know, sort of stab too much in this spot. And the more comfortable you feel predicting how they're going to play the river, then the more value you're going to get out of calling in this situation. Our hero does call, and the river comes at two of hearts. The final board Ace of diamonds, king of diamonds, seven of clubs, five of spades, deuce of hearts. Our hero has black tens. All the draws have missed. There's 14.45 in the pot. There's 17.25 in the hero's stack. Gregory says, I'm expecting this to go check, check the vast majority of the time. Um, so that right there seems like a problem for me. I don't, or a pro, like, seems wrong to me. I don't know why you would expect that your opponent is going to check here often. Um, he bet the turn and he either still has a strong hand or still has a weak hand. <laughs> the deuce of hearts has not changed. I guess three, four got there for a straight. The deuce of hearts has not really changed much on the river. So he still has a lot of incentive to bet the river with many of those same hands. Uh, and in fact, he does bet the river. He goes all in for 1.2x pot. And Greg says, I take a moment to think this out. A long moment. I tank for at least a full minute. What exactly does he have here that we'd polarize this way? The most logical answer is, of course, a set of sevens or a set of fives, targeting things like any weaker ace-x. I could have easily checked behind in a three-bet pot. 
or uh, maybe he turned to pair on the Turner River. But realistically, I feel sets would more often weight their bets towards a smaller sizing, three-quarter to half-pot size bet to ensure they maximize the number of times they get called. Sizing up this large fold dealt too many weaker one-pair hands and bluff catchers, such as queens, jacks, and my exact tens. Uh, so now you're getting into making exploitative assumptions, which is good. Like, I don't mean to say that as a bad thing. Um, it's... So I can tell you, like, in theory... So I, I mean, I, I can tell you, given that assumption, um, like, yeah, if you say, I expect that he's going to use a bigger size with bluffs and a smaller size with value bets, then yes, of course, the right play is call. Right. And that's, I mean, it follows logically from that assumption. I'm not really capable of, you know, commenting on the quality of that assumption. That just depends on that player and how comfortable you feel assuming things like that. I mean, I guess I'll point out, like, if you're calling with tens here, he's like, that is his incentive to jam with sets. Um, so it, like, it's a little unclear to me when people say this, whether they're stating that, like whether people are aware that they're making an exploitative assumption when they say things like that, you know, when they say, I think the player would bet smaller when they have a set. I feel like sometimes people will make the claim that like they should bet smaller when they have a set. Like if he had a strong hand, he should bet smaller to get value. That's not true. Um, like the fact that you're considering calling here with tens is precisely why he should you know, if he has a strong hand, he should be betting large in order to get full value because like maybe you will talk yourself into thinking it's a bluff. I mean, the, the correct play here, if he is betting polarized, is the bet big. Um, it's entirely plausible to me that, you know, I know these people exist um, who will bet smaller with value hands and bigger with bluffs. And yeah, against those people, you want to call. Um, Finally, Gregory says, uh, as I stared this player down for a full minute, he began to look nervous. He wouldn't meet my eye. He was glancing around somewhat sporadically. I was already rather indifferent to a call or fold here, inching towards a call when uh, he suddenly shifted his entire sitting position in a clearly uncomfortable manner. It was this specific motion that pushed me over the edge, and frankly, I just didn't believe that guy. All this being said, I went with my gut, clicked the call button, and Villain reluctantly showed me 5-4 of clubs for only one pair. I scooped. It was the largest pot I've ever been involved in, and I had to shake off a bit of adrenaline after the fact. So congratulations. Um, I know, you know, I, I made the comment early on about is it wise to still be sitting at the table with twice the amount that you were already like borderline comfortable buying in for. And um, clearly you were not afraid <laughs> to put the money in and to follow your um, follow your read and, and you know, like you weren't intimidated by the stakes. So I think that speaks very well to your um, willingness to call here. Uh, and, and Gregory did have a final question, which is, how often do you deviate from a sound strategy and follow your gut slash live reads slash tells? Is it even correct to do so on a somewhat consistent basis? I've always been told basing any part of your playoff things like this is largely unreliable and should not um, often, if at all, be worked into your strategy. This is actually the question that interests me most, as tells haven't been talked about too much on the podcast. I would like to hear your opinions on the matter. Um, I think that there's a line in Gregory's email that is uh, kind of sums up how you want to do this. He says, I was already rather indifferent to a call or a fold and he, that his opponent's behavior sort of pushed him towards the call. And I think, you know, if I were to just give you a one sentence line about tells, 
it would be tells or tiebreakers. Like when you have a decision that is otherwise close, that's the best time to rely on tells because kind of by definition, what you're saying, and this is often true when you have like a pure bluff catcher like this, you are, if your opponent is playing in a theoretically perfect way, you're, you are literally indifferent between calling or folding. So any little piece of information, even if it's not super reliable, it just has to be better than nothing um, to, you know, to let that break the tie for you. Um, you should be a lot more reluctant to deviate from a, like a thing that would not be close. So let's imagine in the same situation, Gregory had like queen jack. So he had the best possible draw on the turn. He has, he has the nut no pair. And now he's facing this big shove on the river. And he says, oh, my opponent looked really uncomfortable and I thought he was bluffing. And like, hey, I mean, queen jack can beat a bluff. So, you know, because he looked so uncomfortable, I called. Okay, so queen jack is not a hand that you'd be indifferent to calling with on the river. Like queen jack would be a pure fold at equilibrium precisely because it's losing to some hands that the villain might be bluffing with, like the 5-4 that he ended up showing down. So you could like be right that the villain is bluffing and still lose, which is why, I mean, even though you can beat some bluffs with queen jack, the fact that you're losing to some bluffs is going to make it a solidly losing call. Um, and so that's the sort of thing where because the decision is not close, even when you do pick up a tail, even if you're like your your gut or your senses or whatever are telling you that he's bluffing, there's still nothing that you sh should probably do about it with Queen Jack. Likewise, you know if you're holding like pocket kings and you get a feeling that your opponent is like very strong, you probably still shouldn't fold your set of kings, even though you're losing to four three and like I mean, probably not aces, but maybe. Um, so like there are some hands where the right play is so clearly correct that even a tell that is maybe like nudging you a little bit in the other direction, it's not enough to push you all the way towards doing something that's like very far from what you would otherwise do. But when it's already a very close decision, then I think that is the best time to allow, you know, physical behavior to influence your decision. I think it's also to Gregory's credit that he took his time to make this decision. And it sounds like not an unreasonable amount of time. He says, I tank for at least a full minute, which I think for a decision like this, like no one's gonna bat an eye at, you know, um, if this is a small pot and you're tanking for three minutes on the river, that's gonna get on people's nerves. But um, I mean, I'm, I'm, you see people tank longer than this all the time when, um, on, on much less big decisions. So I think this is like a totally reasonable amount of time to take. You wanna give yourself time in big pots. I know a lot of people, even when they're fully comfortable with the stakes, a lot of people just get sort of worked up in big pots, get nervous, get excited, get whatever. And um, I think a lot of people would benefit from just slowing down, giving themselves time to think through the situation, even if you're fairly sure what you're going to do. In a big pot, you know, it's worth considering the alternative. A lot of people listening to this show may know I have a background in competitive debate um, as a as a debater myself and as a teacher of debate. Um, and there's, I, I think you should have a debate with yourself. I think even if you find yourself saying, I'm probably going to fold here because all I have is a pair of tens, like it's worth saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, if I didn't fold, what, what would be like the next best play? In this case, you only have one other option, which is call. So force yourself 
to make the strongest argument that you can for calling. Even if you're pretty sure you're gonna fold, take the time to make the argument for calling. Matt Janda calls this arguing like a politician. So you sort of argue both sides of, of the issue, I think is the idea there. Um, make the case for calling, make the case for folding, and just make sure that you've considered both. And you know, nine times out of 10, maybe 19 times out of 20, you're gonna end up doing the thing that you thought was the best play anyway. But the only way to find that exception, you know, when there is a better option, is to force yourself to look for it. It's not necessarily gonna, you know, jump right out at you and wave its arms and you know, blow a trumpet. <laughs> You're gonna have to look for it if you want to find the better play. And this is how you find better plays. Like everyone can find the obvious play. The way that you get an edge on your opponents is by taking the time to look and to find the less obvious play. And when you're playing live poker you potentially get more information by taking time, which is exactly what happened for Greg. You know, because he took the time, his opponent had to sit there sweating, and Greg was able to get a vibe off of this player. Maybe I'm being a little results-oriented in my analysis of this, but, um, you know, this is a real thing. Like, tells are real. Uh, in this case, Greg was able to articulate what it was that he saw, that lent him towards uh, folding. But sometimes I think this happens at a more subconscious level. I think sometimes you just get a feel from somebody that they're strong or weak and you can't necessarily put your finger on exactly what it is that's pushing you one way or another. But again, if it's, if it's an otherwise close decision, like you have to make the decision somehow, you might as well let your subconscious get involved because your conscious mind is having trouble coming up with the right answer. I think that there are conditions in which your gut can lead you astray, for sure. Ideally, you just stop playing when you're under those conditions. So I think the time when your gut is going to be most reliable is when you're frustrated, when you're tired. Um, if you've been running bad, your gut is probably going to tell you, your, your gut is going to say a lot of worst case scenarios. So when you've been running bad, your gut is always going to be like, oh, he probably just has it again. He probably just has it again. You're going to miss three bets. You're going to miss value bets. You're going to miss calls. Your gut's just going to have you not putting enough money on the table with good hands because your gut expects to lose more than realistically you are. Um, other times, you know, if you're like stuck and you're trying to get even, then your gut is going to have you gamble because there's a part of you that cares more about getting even than it cares about making money. And it doesn't really care about losing more or it's willing to lose more in order to try to get even. And that's a very dangerous mindset to be in when you're trying to gamble well. But so like that's another time when your gut is going to be unreliable when it has essentially ulterior motives. <laughs> that's, that's when your gut can least be trusted. I think it's also good to be aware of your own tendencies. You know, I think most people, myself very much included, we want to call the river. It's just more fun. You get to see the other person's cards. You have a chance of winning. I mean, if you fold, that pot never gets pushed to you when you fold, right? But there's always the chance. You have, a, you have another second of hope when you call. Every once in a while, you get the really nice feeling of that pot being pushed to you. And the really nice, I mean, look, hero calling is fun, okay? Like a lot of my favorite poker hands, like the hands that I sort of think of with the most fondness involve hero calling. It's just, it's a fun feeling and that makes it dangerous because we're inclined to call more than we should because there are these sort of extrinsic factors like 
the fun of calling, the potential of winning the pot, getting to see the other players' cards, knowing you didn't get bluffed. All those things are... None of those have actual monetary value. So if you care about making money at poker, you need to push back against the part of yourself that wants to pursue those other agendas. And so I think being aware of the situations where your gut is biased is helpful. Um, knowing that you have a tendency to call too many three bets or to call too often on the river or to check when you ought to bet. Um, I think you want to know that so that you can know to be more skeptical of your gut in those certain situations. And the flip side of that is you should be more trusting of your gut when it goes against those motivations. So if you have not been running bad recently and you're holding a set of fives on this river, which again, the board is ace of diamonds, king of diamonds, seven of clubs, five of spades, deuce of hearts, and you're fully bankrolled for this game such that you don't have to worry about the potential of sort of being intimidated by the stakes or whatever. If these are like stakes that are comfortable for you and you have a set and something in your brain is telling you you should fold, I tend to listen to that because I know that my natural tendency is just to want to call rivers in general. I know that I don't like folding sets. And so if this idea to fold a set has managed to battle its way to the front of my consciousness, it's gotten through the part of me that wants to call too many rivers. It's gotten through the part of me that wants to, that, that, you know, hates folding sets and has managed to reach my consciousness and is trying to shout at me like, you should fold this set. Like it did a lot of work to get there and it probably is pretty strong, <laughs> you know? Um, so when I have an inkling that like goes against my natural inclinations, I try to listen to this. In terms of, you know, how I, how I use gut and I guess how you should use gut and also how you should use tells when you're playing. Um, if you're more interested in this subject, especially tells, uh, I really highly recommend Zachary Elwood's books, um, the Reading Poker Tales series. There's three of them all together. I think they're all great. Um, he really influenced a lot the way I think about and the way I use tales. Um, he's been on the show, I believe, twice. He's one of our earliest guests. Um, that the, the the early appearance is. Um, it was uh, episode 14. Um, that's the one where we talked more about tells. His more recent appearance was um, also interesting for other reasons. It was less specific to um, to poker tales. But I think uh, Zach's books are excellent, and um, you can hear him on this very podcast. Um, so I think if, if you're really interested in, in the subject of tells and learning to think more about them, like it's pretty different from if you've read Caro's uh, book of tells. Kara's Book of Tales is very much a, like, when someone does this, it means that. There's some, I mean, I, th I think that's a fine book, but I think Elwood's books are, I mean, they're, they're much more recent. You know, he's he's read the Kara books. He's like, taking that stuff into consideration. But uh, Zach gives a lot more context on how to interpret tales. You know, that it's not always this, you know, scratching head means bluffing. Right? It has a lot to do with um, the, the psychology of, you know, why are people using these behaviors in the first place? And a tell might mean one thing if they do it while they're betting, and a different thing if they do it while you're betting, for instance. 
so he, he breaks tells into these different categories. He gives you like a whole framework for interpreting them. Um, that's really the, the material that I would point you to. I think a lot of, if I were to go into more detail about tells, I would really just be, you know, channeling stuff that I had gotten from Elwood's books. So I encourage you to check those out. Thank you, Gregory, for writing. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you especially to those of you who are already supporting us at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Uh, really highly encourage others to go check that out. Um, even if you just sign up, like we won't be offended if you sign up for a month and you're like, oh, I don't really like this that much and you decide to quit, you know, perfectly fine. That's not going to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> you can do it anyway. And um, I think you're, I think you'll, I mean, if, if, if you're on the fence about it, I don't think you're going to be disappointed. Like it's just, you know, high, high quality strategy content every day and fun and entertaining so uh, please do check it out thank you everybody have a great week Stop.